Welcome back for another fireside chat for our FreightWaves TV 3PL Summit. I'm Kaylee Nix, super excited to be joined here by the armchair attorney, Matt Leffler, to talk a little bit about some of the big-time legal challenges facing the 3PL space. Matt, it's great to have you. Always love having your voice on our FreightWaves TV event, so thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. I'm fresh back from the Ozarks, ready to talk about law and supply chain, two things that you just can't opt out of. There you go. And it seems like right now for not only our headlights here at FreightWaves, but a lot of supply chain law is starting to dominate some of the mainstream media headlines. We're getting a lot of attention and rightly so. We've got a lot of legal issues that are coming to the forefront of our industry space right now, whether that's non-competes, whether that's double brokering schemes, whether that's what's going on in Congress from truck parking to driver classifications, all of the above. So I'm excited to dig into it a little bit. First thing, of course, you are the armchair attorney. Give us a little bit of a rundown about where your expertise sits. Well, I'm a third generation guy in the supply chain. My grandfather drove trucks. My father had a maintenance company and I got in the business doing law and and defending trucking companies. Ultimately, what I do as the armchair attorneys, I help people understand things like post-employment restrictive covenants, non-competes, non-solicits, non-disparagements, and non-disclosures, all so many wonderful contracts. And then I also help people understand what the lay of the land is when it comes to liability for trucking companies and for third-party logistics companies when it comes to whether it's driver classification, as you talked about, but anything from liability all the way to formation. So I love to help small businesses or big businesses navigate the law, because the law is everything, just like supply chain is. So let's start with one of our most contentious, and I would call it almost a most hot button legal issue facing the industry right now. And that is everything to do with non-competes, non-solicits, non-disclosures. We've seen a really kind of almost five year long fight now to get rid of non-competes and take a lot of that restriction out of the 3PL space. And I kind of see both sides of the coin, but I tend to lean more on the side of getting rid of our non-competes. People have the right to work. Let them do what they want, right? Give us a little bit of a rundown of where the industry sits right now in this battle and what steps have been taken really in the most recent kind of three months to address this. Yeah, absolutely. This is one in five working Americans, nearly 30 million people have signed a non-competition agreement. And these things are pervasive. It is all industries, all income brackets, all the things. And the idea behind the non-compete essentially is, how can I stop somebody who has worked with me from doing their job, from doing what they know how to do? And it has been a a, a kind of a, a crutch that some industry folks have used to say, I don't need to improve working conditions. I don't have to make a better company to work for. I just need to threaten my former colleagues and I will sue them. But to your point, a lot has changed in the last few months. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has put out what we call a proposed rule uh, that will ban non-competition agreements. What makes this thing so fascinating is it not just bans them, but it also rescinds all the existing ones. More so, it has to be individualized notification, emails, phone calls, letters to every single person that's ever signed a non-compete with your organization. The industry is terrified of this rule. So what has happened is they have extended the period for commenting. Over 11,000 people have commented and said, we want these things to go. Unilaterally, there's very few people who say, man, I wish there were more restrictions in the ability for me to have my job. That'd be great. 
But these comments tell a story of people who lose their careers, lose their homes, have to move. These are things that destroy lives. Now, the reality is when this rule is finalized and it will be finalized, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and a whole bunch of other very sophisticated entities will sue to try and stop it. And that might pause the rule for the next few months, maybe even years. There is also work in Congress with something called the Workforce Mobility Act. This is a bipartisan bill that's both in the House and the Senate. And if it would to pass, it would also ban non-competition agreements. So the ultimate thing about the FTC is, do they have the authority? Do they have the, the rule from Congress to make it? And that's a question that will be litigated. So non-competes are everywhere. Um, it's state by state today. The my recommendation, and this is not legal advice, but everybody, if you are presented with a non-competition agreement, ask for more time to review it. Tell them you don't want to sign it. Get a lawyer. These things are terrible and they will ruin your life. I guarantee it. It is not a pretty picture when you're trying to find a job. You have to tell your future companies, yeah, I got this uh, non-competition agreement. It's going to follow me for the next year or two years. So specifically in the 3PL space, non-competes are very pervasive in our industry. And as you mentioned, they can be detrimental, especially because a lot of them end up in very vague kind of broad language. They end up with things that maybe say, hey, we've got a regional non-compete. But it's if you're working regionally, your company can be based in a completely different state, still counts as your non-compete, right? And it's can really be detrimental to a person's work life, to a personal life, to their financial health, and really their future overall. To compound that, some of these companies also throw in a non-solicit agreement, which I'm a little bit more on board with, right? That protects the company's interests, says, you know what, hey, maybe no, don't solicit our business away from us if you decide to leave. Do you think that there is space for company protections like non-solicit agreements to exist while still allowing an employee the flexibility to go out and make their career changes or even find something new? Yeah, that's a great question. So non-solicitation agreements are a, a contract clause that you say, I will not do something. I will not call on my former coworkers. I'm not going to call on my former customers. What ends up happening, though, is they do start to morph into non-competes if, if the contract says, hey, uh, if someone reaches out to you, uh, you need to not work with them because you're still bound by this non-solicit. To talk about non-solicits in a very broad sense, the idea for employers is I want to be able to control you after you leave. I want to know who you talk to. I want to know why you're talking to them. And I want to make sure that I keep a tab on you. And if you were in a relationship with somebody and they said the same thing to you after you broke up with them, you'd say, this is a dysfunctional relationship. I don't like this. But non-solicits have a place in the business. Ultimately, if you look at a non-solicit, you should not be bound by clients that you had coming in. You maybe can be bound by ones that you meet while you're at that company. And ultimately, it doesn't prevent anybody from the organization or your customers to say, hey, I see you're not there anymore. What are you doing now? Oh, I'm doing this, this, and this. If you want to work together, we can do that. So non-solicits simply stop you from making an overt action to your former coworkers or your former customers. They can still reach out to you. And I always say this, if you're very effective at what you do, you are just simply renting your contacts to your employer. When you go to the next place, they're going to follow you because they want to follow people they trust and believe in. This industry, it is massive, but it is small. It is about trust and knowing people. And ultimately, if you're good at what you do, the non-solicit should not be as damaging. I would also say these things should not be two or three years. I, I fundamentally believe one month for every year you work is somewhat reasonable. But to do a blanket one year if you've been there for five months is ridiculous. I, I think 
Non-solicits will be the next target after we look at these uh, non-competition agreements because they do also kind of impact the ability to, to get a job because what ends up happening is a new employer will say, hey, do you have any post-employment restrictive covenants? And if you do, disclose them. And you might get that scarlet letter that says, hey, this person's got a, a thing. We're not going to work with them. So it, it it's an interesting contract. It's going to be very fascinating to see how this plays out really in the next few months from the FTC, as we mentioned. Let's move on to our next big time legal challenge facing the brokerage industry. This is one that the Transportation Intermediaries Association has been fighting for a very long time. And it is really trying to tack down a narrow definition of what a broker is and how a brokerage, who a brokerage can operate with. We see the TIA fighting a lot to get out some of those bad actors in our industry, those folks who are maybe double brokering or who are operating as dispatchers and moonlighting themselves as brokers and doing so not necessarily illegally, but in a way that's frowned upon because it's not quite defined yet. How does this kind of shake out in this space? Are we waiting for a full-on federal rulemaking to decide, hey, this is a broker, this is not? Are we looking at more of a state-by-state basis? What are your thoughts? That's a great question. And I, as a lawyer, I'll say it's probably not a legal solution when it comes to double brokering. This is a contract between a shipper and a broker that allows you to move freight with them. If you disclose to everybody, we're talking about co-brokering, not illegal. When it comes to double brokering, there might be an element of fraud, but the FMCSA is not really involved with double brokering, mostly because this is impossible to enforce. The people that are doing this don't live in this country oftentimes. And how are you going to get the name of the person, the entity, and chase them down to some foreign country and penalize them? So at the end of the day, you have to know who you do business with. Know your brokers, know your shippers, know your carriers. And if you know them, it's not nearly as dangerous. But double brokering is going to continue as long as people find and make money off of it. And I don't know the FMCSA has, one, the wherewithal and the resources to enforce anything like this. And I don't think they have the appetite to get into what would be essentially private contractual matters between shippers and brokers. I would love to be an interesting solution out there. But honestly, I don't see a real easy path because enforcement will be very challenging. Something that I think plagues the industry, and it's one of those things where if you're a broker, you really just have to do your due diligence and have that relationship, that open line of communication with your shipper and say, hey, this went wrong. I am so sorry. That's my bad. Let's try and fix it. As you mentioned, I don't know if there's a good legal solution to get there. But another thing that we will see Final issue that I want to bring up to light today has to do with liability. There's a case going on where C.H. Robinson and what was an accident case that happened. C.H. Robinson had had some issues where we're debating liabilities, a broker responsible for an accident if it happens, if they're the one booking with the carrier. Coming from that legal and liability standpoint, is this really murky water where we're going to have to see brokerage now holding on to more insurance and brokers more vetting their carriers, things like that to prevent maybe some fallout falling on their shoulders? Yeah, that's a great question. The C.H. Robinson case brought to light what has always been the case in our supply chain, which is if you're a broker and you hire a motor carrier who is not good and you don't do your due diligence to vet them, you can be on the hook for what we would call as like negligent hiring or negligent retention or negligence in this space. Negligence does not get preempted by federal statutes. This is the thing that the, the, in that case with C.H. Robinson, they were trying to say, oh, F4A gives us preemption. You can't regulate us because of price and routing and all this. And the court, the Supreme Court didn't even hear it. They said, look, this is well established. Negligence at the state level is a common law thing. It's a 
been around for a long time. Judges look at different cases and they look at the facts and the circumstances and apply that to the law. And this has been the case for decades. It's not going away. So if you are a broker and you see this case, one, it doesn't actually mean that C.H. Robinson is liable. In that case, Robinson was saying, just get us out of here. Let, let us leave. Let us walk away. And the courts are like, no, you don't get to do that. You have to stay here and you have to show us what you did. And Robinson's like, well, that's dumb. I'm going to appeal. And they appealed. And the courts were like, dude, are you not paying attention? Like we've told you, you have to be in this case. You might get out. You might be able to escape. That sounds wonderful. But if you've been negligent, you're not going to be exempted. And so what brokers have to realize is that when there's a catastrophic accident and the minimum insurance a motor carrier has is, let's say, $750,000, uh, you're going to spend more than that. And the plaintiff attorney is going to turn around and say, okay, where are the pockets? Uh, I, I'll sue the shipper, but they're going to be so far insulated. They they intermediary after intermediary to protect themselves. But for the brokers, they're the next person in that chain of custody. And they're going to say, what did you do? Why? What, what was your process? And you're going to have to explain it to them. And so for brokers, always carry adequate insurance. Dude, uh, this is how you lose your business. Because one of the things people forget is your insurance is where we start as lawyers. I will ask somebody, show me your certificate of insurance, some of your policy limitations. And if it goes above that, I'm going after your stuff. I'm going after your trucks. I'm going after your office furniture. I'm going after your leases. I'm going to liquidate everything to pay my client. So people need to be aware that this is not going to change. There is no federal go government coming in saying, oh, you're going to be exempted from this liability. It's just not going to happen. If you are negligent in the process of finding a motor carrier, you could would be held responsible. And that is an interesting thing that all brokers need to be aware of. So all three of those topics are obviously very hotly contentious right now in our space. Coming from your perspective, what do you think are some of the next up and coming legal challenges that are really facing the 3PL space? We've got about a minute here to finish it out. Yeah. So I would say what I'm really fascinated with is the um, FMCSA's supplemental proposed rule of automation for level four and level five vehicles. If you have a driverless truck that is regulated and allowed on the roads by the FMCSA, a lot of things change for intermediaries. Because if you can get a robot to do it, what else can you automate? And that, I think, is going to be something that we're going to be talking about, not just this year, but the next few years. When that final rule comes out, it will be very interesting to see who's able to run autonomous fleets. So many interesting things going on in this space. Matt Luffler, thank you so much for joining us. Armchair Attorney, if people want to catch your content, where can they go to find that? Find me on LinkedIn. Find me on Twitter. It's Armchair Addy, A-T-T-Y. Why? Because A-T-T-Y is the abbreviation for the word armchair for, for attorney. I'm so excited to be here and thank you for having me on. All right. We will continue talking more about the 3PL space. Thank you guys all so much for tuning into our FreightWaves TV 3PL Summit. Great to have you all as always. If you missed any of our fireside chats today or our keynote with Ann Ranky, president of the TIA, you can find them on demand after the event on tv.freightwaves.com. Stay tuned. We've got more headed your way.